Well, a couple of days later, sitting at the breakfast table, my daughter looks up and she says, you know, you think you get this parenting thing? You don't get it at all, <laughs> at all, right? What had happened was there was gonna be a sleepover and the other parents had caved in and let their daughters do it. And we weren't letting her, so we didn't get it at all. And I think, you know, if we look at parenting as a path of self-discipline to help our children, that's the hard work we have to do as parents of teenagers. Once we cross the Rocky Mountains, our teenagers are going to be developing critical thinking. And that critical thinking is so important to their independence. But it's going to make our time with them challenging. They are going to argue about lots of things. If we have more than one teenager, we're going to feel that we are being cross-examined by a team of expert lawyers. They're going to go over our family policies the way tax lawyers go over the tax law and look for loopholes. And they will call us as witnesses in front of company, in front of relatives. We will be depositioned in the morning. It will be continual. And I always feel that parents of teenagers need a hotline, you know? Call a friend and say, I'm about to let my daughter do something I don't want her to do, but I'm tired of arguing. Right? Because our teenagers, they're like prize fighters. They just work us over. Body punches. We're standing, but we're knocked out. It's like a technical knockout. We, they, just, they just wear us down. So how do we move through this wonderful, dramatic time? We have to begin to see that our lines of communication with our children are open. I want to read you. What I, what I think is a very distinctive, typically distinctive passage of teen, parenting a teenager. It's from a great book called Hunting for Hope by Scott Russell Sanders. Its uh, subtitle is A Father's Journey. And here's what he says. For the previous year, no matter how long our spells of serenity, Jesse and I kept falling into quarrels like victims of malaria breaking out in fever. We might be talking about soccer or supper, about the car keys or the news, and suddenly our voices would begin to clash like swords. I proposed this trip to the mountains in hopes of discovering the source of that strife. Of course, I knew that teenage sons and their fathers are expected to fight, yet I sensed there was a grievance between us that ran deeper than the usual vexations. Jesse was troubled by more than a desire to run his own life, and I was troubled by more than the pain of letting him go. I wished to track our anger to its lair, to find where it hid and fed and grew. And then if I could not slay the demon, at least I could drag it into the light and call it by name. The peace between us held until we turned back from the waterfall and began discussing where to camp the following night. Jesse wanted to push on to Thunder Lake, near 11,000 feet, and pitch our tent on the snow. I wanted to stop 1,000 feet lower and sleep on dry dirt. We're not equipped for snow, I told him. Sure we are. Why do you think I bought a new sleeping bag? Why did I call ahead to reserve snowshoes? I suggested we could hike up from a lower campsite and snowshoe to our heart's content. He loosed a snort of disgust. 
I can't believe you're wimping out on me, Dad. I'm just being sensible. You're wimping out. I came here to see the backcountry, and you want to poke around the foothills. This isn't wild enough to you? I wave my arms at the view. What do you need? Avalanches and grizzlies? Just then, as we rounded the bend, an elderly couple came shuffling toward us, hunched over walking sticks, white hair jutting from beneath their straw hats. They were followed by three toddling children, each rigged out with a tiny backpack and canteen. Jesse and I stood aside to let them pass, returning their nods with cheery hellos, returning nods to their cheery hellos. After they trooped by, Jesse muttered, we're in the wilds, huh, Dad? That's why the trail's, trail's full of grandparents and kids. And then he quickened his pace until the damp blonde curls that dangled beneath his bill were slapping against his neck. Is this how it's going to be, I called to him? You're going to spoil the trip because I won't camp on the snow? He turned and glared at me. You're the one spoiling it. You and your hang-ups. You ruin everything. Now, I want to take this a little further and read what happens next because it shows what really was at the heart of their disagreement and it has everything to do with thinking because in the third phase of childhood, what we think is going to matter to our children because by pushing against it, they define themselves. Here's what he said. I was simmering when I caught up with Jesse at the trailhead where he was leaning against our rented car arms crossed over his chest, head sunk forward in a sullen pose. I knew all too well that pose, his eyes hidden beneath the frayed bill of his cap. Having to wait for me to unlock the car had no doubt reminded him of another gripe. I carried only one set of keys. Because he was too young to be covered by the rental insurance, I would not let him drive. He had fumed about my decision, interpreting as proof that I mistrusted him and still thought of him as a child. That earlier scuffle had petered out with him grumbling, stupid, stupid, I knew this would happen. Why did I come out here? We drove in the depths of Big Thompson Canyon where the road swerved along a frothy river between sheer rock face and a spindly guardrail. I could bear the silence no longer. So what are my hang-ups, I said. How do I ruin everything? You don't want to know, 